I'm going to talk about, obviously because it's Easter, I'm going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, but I'm going to talk about the passion, the Easter story, from a very different perspective. Um, I'm going to be sharing my, kind of how things have congealed for me <clears throat> over the last five years of deconstructing and then trying to reconstruct um, and seeing where that takes me and where that leads me. So what I'm sharing with you today is a lot of just my ideas <clears throat> that I'm drawing from several different sources to bring stuff together. And uh, I want to be clear, I'm not trying to share with any kind of divine authority. Uh, I just want to uh, share my path and my journey and my thoughts on where we're at, what's happening, and how we might reinterpret the Easter message in a way that works for us. And if what I share resonates with you, great. Um, I hope it does. If it doesn't resonate with you, then um, that's good, too. But uh, leave me alone. <laughs> let me let me go my own path. So I'm going to be sharing a lot of information, which I often do. Uh, if you've been following me for any time, it'll be easier to follow if this is your first time hearing me by chance. Um, it may be like trying to drink water out of a fire hydrant. <clears throat> so what I would suggest is that instead of getting overwhelmed by the information and trying to grasp it all and understand it all, that you take what speaks to you and what resonates with you and let it benefit you. And if there's other stuff in there that doesn't, then just... Um, Put it on the shelf, so to speak. So I'm trying to think. I've got so much I want to put out there, but uh, then, then I'm not sure exactly where to start. So I'm going to start by defining some terms. And I want to talk about the Easter story from the perspective of the left-hand path and something that, if it doesn't completely undermine, it tames down this idea of sacrifice, which has been so central to the Christian religion and other religions as well. In fact, spirituality as a whole um, pursues the right-hand path. And I'll define those terms in just a minute. But I want to suggest to you that perhaps Jesus was revealing a left-hand path approach and that we can interpret his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, all of that in those terms. So let me define the terms, and I'll come back and define them again because this is probably new terminology for you. Um, the term left-hand, well, let me define them first. Right-hand path, the right-hand path, is the path of sacrifice and devotion to an object of worship. So that can be God, that can be, uh, for some people, the universe, that can be trying to merge with the one. The idea is that you're sacrificing yourself. It's not, I'm not, it's not the idea of God sacrificing something for us. I'm, I'm not even going there. I'm talking about the idea of us dedicating and devoting ourselves to an object outside of us and seeking to merge with that object through worship, devotion, and dedication and oneness. I'll give you a metaphor to help you understand this in a minute. The left-hand path, on the other hand, <clears throat> is the path that seeks to maintain your individual point of consciousness while being in harmony with yourself and the world around you and the cosmic order. So the one is almost a, the right-hand path is almost a dissolving into and losing yourself, whereas the left-hand path is a strengthening of yourself 
into self-actualization that then in a corresponding way allows you to live in harmony with the rest of the created order. And I'll be defining those differences a little bit more as we go on in the video. <clears throat> so in, in my studies um, of other religions, other spiritual paths, and I'm being all inclusive here. So I'm looking at what little I know about Hinduism and Buddhism and the various religions from the East, what I know from the Western world of the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity mostly, but also even sort of the New Age spirituality. This is going to blend into things like Course in Miracles and some other things like that. Those are all what I would consider right-hand path ways. Uh, the idea of mystical union is definitely a right-hand path sense or a right-hand path way to go. So <clears throat> let me give you a metaphor to help you understand it. Uh, so one of the things, what I wanted to say was, in studying all that, whether it's, it's ancient uh, shamanism or current indigenous shamanism, whether it's what I understand of an ancient Egyptian religion, um, certainly certain veins of Christianity, um, the one common theme through all of it is this idea that we have a divine spark inside of us, that, that we're not just human beings, but that we have divinity encased in our flesh. The Apostle Paul said it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. In Colossians 1, 27, he says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Not Christ other than you, or Christ instead of you, or Christ outside of you, but Christ in you. So it's this idea of divinity being clothed in humanity, but then through our human experience, when we become human, we forget that we are divine. And so there is this awakening to our divine spark. Now, I want, to, I want you to get that idea of the divine spark. The right-hand path sees that spark as fallen or as separated from the fire. So the fire being all that God is or all that the universe is or all that there is, however you want to understand that. The fire, let's just say in this sense, being God or what we call God in the West. And you're a spark that has split off. And so we have this idea of the fall, sin, redemption, or a journey back. So a lot of Kabbalah, a lot of esoteric uh, Western mystery traditions is all about this journey back to reunite or rejoin with the fire. Some people use the metaphor of being a drop of water in the ocean, that you are just a drop and the spiritual journey is a path back into the ocean so that you just blend and merge into the ocean. Or if we come back to the flame and the spark and the fire, then the goal is for that spark to be reunited to the fire. So there's a losing of self. There's a sacrifice. There's a giving up. There's a surrender. There's a devotion that causes you to lose yourself. So this is where the concept of the ego comes in as being something that we need to uh, sort of dissolve or eradicate. The idea is that we're all one. We're all part of this big cosmic thing called God or the all. You, you understand, hopefully, what I'm saying. But 
the ego creates the illusion of separation. So in that sense, we are the divine spark, and when we lose the ego, the spark returns to the fire. So you sacrifice your ego in that sense in order to return to the fire. That's the right-hand path. Now, we can talk about the left-hand path using the same uh, metaphor of the flame, the spark, the divine spark that is separated off from the fire, and the left-hand path approach, then, is not to return to the fire, but to become a star. In other words, to become your own star, to so awaken the divine fire and the divine glory inside of you that you express divinity. So it's not something other than, I mean, that, that fire, that, that spark, that divine spark came from the fire, but rather than returning to the fire, it's seeking to become a fire of its own. Instead of being a drop that's seeking to go back into the ocean, it's a drop that's seeking to become an ocean or at least a lake, right, of its own. But let's use the concept of a star. So the person who's seeking out the left-hand path, walking the left-hand path, is trying to fully self-actualize the light that is within them, the divinity that is within them, and then follow its own course. So this isn't a massive form of narcissism or selfishness or egotism in the sense that we become contrary to the created order. It's simply that we find our space, just like a star in the sky, and we follow our own course in harmony with the rest of creation. So hopefully that helps you understand. Now, the terms come from uh, Sanskrit, which is the oldest uh, language. Sanskrit was an, uh, a, a holy language. It wasn't a common language or a common tongue. It was mostly spoken by Hindu and Buddhist priests and the wealthy, and it was generally considered like an esoteric language. So that's where the concept, that's where the term left-hand path comes from. It's that ancient. The concept is that ancient. And in the Sanskrit or scriptures or tradition, uh, what it says is that those who are pursuing the left-hand path become awakened, and they stop being sheep. <laughs> so to be a sheep is to be herded, to go along with the herd, and to be led, and they would say that is to be asleep, but that when you awaken, you awaken to your own authenticity, your own individuality, your own divine self, which means then that you break off from the hurt, so you're awakened. So the truly awakened person, at least in this context, is the person who is leaving the hurt or taking the left-hand path or moving in opposition. So this idea of opposition comes with the left-hand path. Now, it's important to realize that's how ancient and how old this uh, concept is because the left-hand path in the West gets associated with Satanism and Luciferianism and that kind of stuff. And for good reason, because a lot of people, especially early on, who were adopting the left-hand path, and I'm talking about going back to the last century and even the century previous to that, identified with the opposition of the predominantly Judeo-Christian ideas that were in Europe and in America. So if you want to understand what Luciferianism is and what Satanism really is, then I suggest you check out Doug Wentz and his uh, YouTube channel because he's done some really good videos to describe what philosophically is happening there 
and how that movement has kind of evolved versus what we think because we're seeing it only in a uh, Judeo-Christian context. But what I'm talking about today has nothing to do with Satanism. It has to do with this older meaning of the left-hand path of awakening your own consciousness, your own divine spark, your own glory, and then becoming a star, doing your highest will, your divine will, if you will, and charting your own course through the sky in harmony with the rest of creation. So hopefully that makes a little bit of sense to you how I'm using this, because I'm going to look at the passion story from a left-hand path perspective rather than a right-hand path perspective. And we'll get a little bit more into that in a bit, because this also has to do, I think, with the changing of the ages. And I do think that the left-hand path is going to gain traction. It may not be called that, but you're going to be able to see it more and more. And I think it's particularly appealing to people in the West. So hopefully this is making sense to you. So let me give you my idea on the ages, going all the way back to the what we know from the dawn of humanity. Um, and I'm not speaking astrologically here necessarily. Uh, I just want to speak kind of historically to you. So in the hunter-gatherer stage of human development, Human beings coexisted in community. The idea was that the earth belonged to everyone, that creation belonged to everyone. So there were no no trespassing signs. You weren't trespassing on someone else's territory. You lived in a community, and then that community hunted and gathered. So whatever was growing that they could eat or use for medicine, they would freely take. Um, and then whatever they could kill to eat, they would take, and it, it belonged to everybody. And the family structure, interestingly enough, the family structure revolved around this reality. Now, some of you are going to find this really distasteful and repulsive, but marriage didn't exist like we think of it today because it, the, the living was so communal. And in fact, in a lot of those cultures, um, for, for a woman to become pregnant, it was believed because I didn't understand the science that we do now about how, you know, one tiny little sperm makes its way to the egg out of however millions of sperm get released in the sex act between two people and makes its way to the egg. And then it, it becomes a blending of the father and the mother. Right. They didn't understand that. And since they lived in a communal sense, what they believed was that. It was possible that, that every man that a woman had sex with contributed to the parentage of the child. So as a matter of survival and status and protection, the woman would seek to sleep with as many men in the community as she could so that it would seem that each man had contributed something to this child. And the more men and the more prestigious the men were, who had contributed to this child, the more they would take on responsibility for protecting that child and for protecting the woman and for um, uh, status within the community. So that's how that happened. Then we move from the hunter-gatherer stage into the agricultural stage. or And, and, and the age of agriculture is based on now the land and the creation and the animals are not communal. 
they are property or ownership of someone else. So you owned land to grow your own food. You no longer just went and found what you could find and eat from it, but you grew your own food and you raised your own livestock. And your wealth was determined by how much land you had and how much livestock you had. Enter the world of the Bible. So then we have this concept now beginning to develop of marriage, but it's not marriage like we think of it today, because now property that was through the agricultural age that property became something. So the way women survived and children survived in the agricultural age was to join themselves to a man who owned property and cattle and livestock and things like that. And also part of your wealth was determined by how many wives you had because women at that point became property. So marriage in its origins was possession. You were a property. You were a possession of the man. And so the more women that the man had, the more children he could have. And then he would pass on his inheritance, the inheritance being the land that he owned. And so marriage did not happen in the Bible and still in many agricultural, predominantly agricultural areas. Uh, there are places in Africa where this still exists today where you have a dowry. So the concept of a dowry was you gave money or you gave something of value to the family, to the father, uh, for one of the daughters. So you were essentially purchasing property from the man, the wife, who, or I'm sorry, the daughter who was also property. You were purchasing that property and bringing it to you. <laughs> So it was a purchase. There was no going before the priest. There was no vows. There was none of this stuff that we do today. It was strictly a business exchange. This is the world of the Bible. And so this is why polygamists, if you had more wives, you were considered to be wealthier. And wives primarily served to uh, take care of the home, to uh, raise the children, and men were more valued because they could care, they could work in the fields, they could tend the livestock, all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of, the, that's the world of the Bible. Then, I don't know, 150 years ago or whatever, we moved away, humanity moved away from the agricultural age into the industrial age. And now wealth is not measured by how much land you own but by the price of the land that you own. It's measured by money or currency. It's measured now by the kind of car you drive or the the kind the size of house that you live in or whatever. But the, at the end of the day, you could live in a small house and have small property and have hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank, and it's hundreds of millions of dollars that's going to measure your wealth. That's all sort of the byproduct of the industrial age. And we've moved now... Even I believe from the industrial age, we've built on that, we've moved into the information age. So you can see the, the changing of the ages. This is important to see. So in the hunter-gatherer stage, you had the fertility stage or the goddess stage, where primarily, when we think of springtime, we think of fertility rites and things like that, primarily... The goddesses, the divine feminine was venerated. Women were held in much higher esteem and they weren't considered to be property. 
When we moved into the agricultural age, which again is the world of the Bible, we moved into the patriarchal age or the age of the father. And the God, the, the male, the divine masculine, overtook the divine feminine in the patriarchal age, and it became about the father rather than the mother. Hope this is making sense to you. So in the patriarchal age, it was male-dominated, uh, which we've already talked about a little bit of that. And the archetypes for the divine were primarily masculine. Exclusively masculine. In fact, there's a really uh, amazing Bible scholar out there. I forget his name or his book. But he wrote, uh, and very well researched, very well documented. He wrote to explain the Genesis garden story, the Garden of Eden story. And his take on it is that that section of the Bible was written specifically, watch this, to subvert the divine feminine, and uh, uh, exalt the divine masculine. And you can see that all throughout the passage. Because in the ancient world, the tree was considered to be a symbol for the goddess. The serpent was closely connected to the goddess because the serpent would go down into the earth. So the serpent was also venerated as part of the goddess religions. And then you have Eve who takes of the fruit. So you have Eve, the woman, taking of the fruit. You have, first of all, the man coming first, not the woman, right? Then you have the woman taking of the tree because she was deceived by the serpent. That is all goddess-related in the time that that story was being circulated. And the garden is also connected with the divine feminine and with goddess worship. So then what you have is, is you have this retelling that no, we don't want to worship the divine feminine. The divine feminine is what's caused all the problems. It's what's caused all the fall. And they get excluded from the garden and enter into that agricultural age. You see it? So when they're in the garden, it's the hunter-gatherer stage where they can freely eat of any of the trees of the garden. The goddess age of the tree and the garden and all that stuff. And then... They move out of the garden, and now by the sweat of his brow, he has to work the land. So now we're moving into the agricultural time period, or the time period of the father. So you have the goddess, you have the male archetype for the god, you have the family structure being patriarchal, and you have this idea of property. The whole narrative of the Old Testament is about property. It's about possessing the land. So you see this theme running clearly through the agricultural period. Wealth was determined by how much land you had, by uh, livestock. I know I'm repeating myself, but I'm trying to go slowly so you get the thought of where I'm going. So you had, in one sense, watch this, the age of the mother, hunter-gatherer period, and the goddess, the divine feminine. You had the age of the father, the agricultural age, and the patriarchal age. Now it's self-evident that we've moved on from the agricultural age into the industrial and informational age. And so now what I'd like to suggest to you is that we're moving into the age of the sun or the byproduct 
of <laughs> the divine feminine, the divine masculine, merging together into a harmony and into a balance that marks a new age that we've moved into. And it's my belief that just like society had to kind of collapse and restructure when it moved from hunter-gatherer goddess stage to patriarchal ownership property stage, to now we're in this sort of industrial age and information age, or the age of the sun, where I believe in, in spirituality, you're not going to have the goddess only, or the god, uh, divine masculine only. You're going to have a balance and a harmony of the two. And as a result of that, you're going to see the masculine energy and the feminine energy within humanity begin to find some harmonization. And you're going to see a complete restructuring of society. So those of us that are fighting so hard, we're, we're in this transitional period. Because remember, these ages were millennia long, right? We're just a 100 years into the new age. And so we're in this horrible transitional period where we're seeing a collapse and a breaking down of our structures and we don't know what to do with it and we don't know what the new structures are going to look like. And so a lot of us are fighting to maintain the old structures without realizing that we're, we're really swimming upstream and that things are absolutely going to change. Now, where this becomes important with the concept of Easter is that the age of property now, this is related to property. I really want you to get this. This is related to property. And the divine masculine required or the worship and the rituals were centered around sacrifice. Taking of something that belongs to me and giving it to the deity. So if you understand the ancient idea of sacrifice, and there have been some great Bible scholars that have brought this out, the idea of sacrifice was not the suffering of the animal, that was incidental. It was usually oftentimes a burnt sacrifice, or even human sacrifice, where you would take of what was yours, your son, your daughter usually, virgin daughter, right? Or the firstborn son, this was very common in the ancient world. And you would sacrifice it to the patriarchal deity, which was the sky god, because without the sun and without favorable weather and without nature cooperating, uh, then you would have drought, you would have locusts, you would have plagues, you would have crop failure. And if you had crop failure, it was devastating. So they realized that they were dependent upon Mother Nature, but instead of it being Mother Nature, now it's the masculine sky god. So I've got to take of my property to ensure that my property is prolonged. I take of my property. I take of my lamb, my sheep, my bull, my son, my daughter, whatever the case may be. And I bring it before the gods and I kill it and usually burn it. Because when I'm burning it, I am changing it from material to something that becomes atmosphere, smoke, and ascends up towards the gods. So when you read in your Bible and God says that the offering was a sweet-smelling sacrifice, that's what's going on. So the patriarchal age was an age that had woven into it this concept 
of sacrifice. And so it makes sense then that the New Testament writers and the way we viewed the death, burial, the passion of Jesus and the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ primarily is denoted by sacrifice. And it's also why in the patriarchal age, the right-hand path is the dominant path because in order to merge back into the fire, you have to sacrifice yourself. You have to sacrifice your ego. Or to use Christian language, I have to offer myself as a living sacrifice. I have to crucify my flesh. I have to give up my life in this world so that I can have life in the next world. And so the the, the predominant frame over which uh, that has these things have ruled these presuppositions these things that were in the corporate consciousness of humanity have been the things that have dictated and ruled over the narrative of the passion and the resurrection of Christ but now we're in a new age and I believe in the new age the left hand path will become the path of the future because we're moving out of the age of sacrifice because of the changing of the ages so I want to give you a different spin before we're done on the Easter story. All right. Are you are you all tracking with me? So sacrifice was part of the patriarchal age. Now we're in a different age. So now we're going to have to think in a higher frame that is not going to be sacrificial, but is going to be the age of self-actualization. In other words, I don't give up any part of myself. I actualize the fullness of who I am as a divine human being to bring it into what the indigenous people call the time of the sixth sun. They also say we're in the changing of an age, the time of the sixth sun, where we move uh, evolutionary from being homo sapien to being homo luminous. So that we take on a totally different biological structure that's related to the light, the spark, the fire. So that instead of shedding this body so that I can go back to heaven, I'm igniting such a fire and such a glory and I'm using all of my internal resources instead of having to give a single thing up to a deity. Instead of having to sacrifice a single thing about myself, I'm taking all of myself and I'm bringing it to its apex, I'm bringing it to its highest point, I'm bringing it to its brightest point, and that then causes a evolutionary leap to where now our physical existence will have a completely different genetic structure. That's what the indigenous people from Peru and the Mayans, that's their prophecy about where we're going. But everybody agrees we're in a different age. Whether you look at it strictly scientifically, we're no longer in the agricultural age. Whether you look at it astrologically, we've moved from Pisces to the age of Aquarius. Or if you look at it indigenously, we've moved into the time of the sixth sun that was prophesied. This is why the 2012 thing with the Mayan calendars was so important and on everybody's radar. Now, what I'd like to suggest to you is that for uh, uh, for most spiritual paths, new age paths, anything related to Christianity is this idea that we're giving ourselves up, that we're shedding our ego, we're shedding our individuality. Whereas the left-hand path says, you, you know, you strengthen 
You strengthen your individual center of consciousness until you become a star, a blazing, <laughs> individuated consciousness, shining forth the fullness of your divinity, shining forth the fullness of your humanity, shining forth the fullness of who you are, completely self-actualized, following your own course, not being a sheep, being awakened, but doing it in cosmic harmony. Just going to let that sink in for a little bit. Now, let's come back around to the story of Jesus. One, one of the things, <clears throat> yeah, I'm going to go ahead and go there. One, one of the things that, that has troubled me, and I got, I got, I stirred up a hornet's nest, mostly because people didn't understand. Um, but progressive Christians. So you have conservative Christianity is dying. The conservative movement is dying. The conservative movement, literally, as Malachi says, has dung on its face right now at least in America. And I don't see a future for conservative Christianity. And I know a lot of my Christian friends are of the same mindset. So we've seen a shift into progressive, what we might call progressive Christianity. This is a form of Christianity, <coughs> excuse me, that has moved away from penal substitutionary atonement ideas of the passion and resurrection of Christ. In other words, God didn't have to kill Jesus in order to, uh, appease his own wrath and m maintain his own righteousness and justice so that you could believe in him, be saved and go into an afterlife. And I do want to say this. Uh, I definitely believe in an afterlife and I, I'll go into that in another series of videos. I definitely believe there is something after this. Okay. I just want to put that out there. <clears throat> but you know, penal substitutionary atonement was the idea. God was so angry. He had to sacrifice his son. Unless you believe in his son, you're going to burn as a crispy critter <coughs> in hell for all eternity, eternal conscious torment, all that stuff, right, which I think was invented by the church. The idea of eternal conscious torment, you've got to come through us in order to be saved in the next life. You've got to sacrifice yourself. You've got to devote yourself. You've got to devote yourself to the church. You've got to devote yourself to our version of the patriarchal deity. Sacrifice anything else. Follow our program and our system, and you'll get to go to heaven otherwise there's hell. So progressive Christians have abandoned that. But instead of, in my opinion, instead of moving forward, not knowing where to go, not knowing what the future looks like, they have gone backwards to cherry picking early church fathers, particularly the Nicene fathers that gave us the Nicene Creed, the Cappadocian fathers who further articulated the Trinitarian doctrine, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they've come up with this concept that they call the cruciform life. And I'll get to that in a second. But I want to say something about the Trinity. The Trinity actually teaches a left-hand path model. Because the Trinity is the idea that the three persons of the Godhead exist without losing their center point of consciousness or self-awareness. So in reality, you cannot have a Trinitarian structure without ego. Because the Son is separate from the Father and knows himself as separate from the Father. And the Father is separate from the Son and knows himself as separate from the Son. And the Spirit, you get it. But they exist in a harmony and in a unity. That's a left-hand path model. That is not a right-hand path model of self-sacrifice. But what they have, but, but so what progressive Christians have done is they've said that the highest form of love is a self-sacrificing love. 
that the highest form of love that God showed us was Jesus dying on the cross. It's still a right-hand path, path because it still sees the concept as the sparks separated from the Father. And so the Father brought about union by the divine word or the Logos or the second member of the Trinity, the divine Son, be taking on flesh, uniting with humanity, then sacrificing himself as a display of self-sacrificial love that they call the cruciform nature of God. In other words, the nature of God is the cross and self-sacrifice and dying. So what they are saying is, is that the form of God is capital punishment, self-inflicted capital punishment, suicidal punishment, sacrifice. In other words, if I'm really going to show you that I love you, I have to sacrifice and give up myself. That is not a harmonious, mutually supportive relationship. I find it absolutely abhorrent in the concept of love. And to say that that is the, the, the essence of the divine, to me, is repulsive. And it misses the mark and it misses the point. And so then they try to live out this cruciform type of love by identifying with the outcast as though you have to give up something in order to identify with the outcast. I mean, how selfish do we have to be? I mean, that's not harmonious living. The left-hand path says, I want to actualize the fullness of who I am, and I want you to actualize the fullness of who you are, and then I want you to follow your course as I follow my course, and together we can live in a cosmic harmony. So it is a... To use, to use another term, it is a synthesis. You have the thesis, I can't love you unless I sacrifice, which would be kind of the antithesis, or the, the me, you, group identification, the whole idea of outcasts and stuff is based on some kind of a thesis, antithesis. But what we're moving towards is a higher place, a synthesis. A good example of this is the difference between capitalism and socialism. Capitalism says, I'm all for the individual. I'm all for you uh, being rewarded for the fruits of your labors. And basically, hardcore capitalism to hell with everybody else. Socialism says, Marxism says, give up individuality. It's a right-hand path. Give up individuality and... Uh, just have communal sharing with everything so you don't have that individual self-actualization necessarily in that picture. And we have created for ourselves philosophically this dichotomy between capitalism and socialism. I believe we're moving into a place where we can fully actualize and be rewarded for our own labors while at the same time having compassion and responsible community where we are responsible to each other, not responsible for each other, but responsible to each other, so that we can see a blending of both capitalism at its best and socialism at its best, removing the thesis, antithesis, and coming to a place of synthesis. You can take that model, you can work it out on all the other things that I'm talking about. Now, <clears throat> it took me 40 minutes to introduce that before I could even get to Jesus. <clears throat> so I want to uh, just give you some thoughts on this, how, how to look at this differently. Um, in John's Gospel... Um, in chapter 16, uh, verse 1, Jesus says, All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will, watch this, <clears throat> they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that 
when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. Verse 7, I'm going to highlight it. But very truly I tell you, it is to your good or to your advantage that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, which we know is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus says, until I can go away from you, until I can depart from you, the comforter will not come to you. Now, something very interesting happens in the garden story. Watch this. Now, this is where we're moving towards, right? Everything I said, if you think about this, in the garden story, Jesus <clears throat> appears to Mary Magdalene, right? She's weeping and crying because they have taken away my Lord. Now watch, Jesus says, it's to my advantage that I go away. It's important to understand that her grief is related to the taking away of Jesus. They have taken away my Lord and there's nothing but an empty tomb. Watch the prophetic significance of this. And Jesus is standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Watch this. Thinking he was the gardener. So now we've got the masculine, the feminine, back in a garden with an empty tomb. So, again, I think the age of the sun, where you've got the blending and the harmony of the two. <clears throat> Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, <clears throat> she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Watch, watch the prophetic significance of this. Jesus said it's to my advantage that I go away. Jesus says, when she recognizes that it's Jesus, she says, Rabboni, or teacher, or rabbi, and he says, do not hold on to me. It is better that I depart. Now, I'm going to give you a really fast overview of what I think John's doing in John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made by him, and without him nothing was made that has been made, and in him was the light. And the light is the life of men. So that light is the divinity, right? And then in the New International it says that the true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The word was there. Let me say it slower. The true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The word was is not in the original text. The true light who gives light to everyone coming into the world. Or in the Greek, it's the true light that gives light to everyone. Who is coming into the world. So it wasn't the concept of the other. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the divinity. And he gives light to everybody, meaning revelation. And he was coming into the world. No, what was saying was that everyone has, partakes in this divine essence, in this divine spark of the Logos. So you are a piece of the Logos. You have light inside of you. Everyone that comes into the world has this light inside of them, this light of the Logos. And then we mistranslate John 1.14, where it says, 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us as other than us, and we beheld his glory. So we get fixated on the historical person of Jesus. But in the original text, and I've, I've done this multiple times, I can't do it now. In the original text, the word there is the same word that gets translated in, for in Christ, or in the temple, or in the room, or in the house, or in the garden. Everywhere else gets translated within. So what John is actually saying, what the writer was actually saying was, the word became flesh and dwelt within us. Now watch this. And we beheld, this is the key to John's gospel, we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. <coughs> in other words, the beholding is, a, is, is the divine light and the divine spark within, not the divine spark in the historical person of Jesus without. So then, in the next section, there are two disciples, which is the number for witness in the scriptures. It can also be the number for division, dividing, thesis, antithesis. And they see Jesus, and they start to follow him. So now you have three. Now you have a synthesis. Now you have a third age. And Jesus asks them, what do you seek? What are you looking for? And... They say to him, we want to know where you dwell. We want to know where you abide. We want to know where you live. And Jesus says to the two disciples, come and see. Come and see. That connects right back to John 1.14. Behold the glory that's within you. So what John, what John is trying to deliberate here is he's saying what, what, I'm going to do is take the reader on a journey if they understand how to understand the text to reveal who they are inside as light. That when you're beholding the stories, you're beholding truths about yourself so that if you read the gospel that way, there's a spiritual unfolding. Now, Aaron, how can you say that? Because this word dwell, we, we seek where you dwell, the, the climax of John's gospel and the only thing that, that, one of the things that makes John's gospel unique, we don't find it anywhere else in the other gospels, is what he's saying in John 14, 15, and 16 about the, being the dwelling place of God and you becoming a habitation for the Spirit. So the goal of John's gospel is for you to become a habitation of the Spirit, for you to become an, an, a human indwelt by the divine. That's what you're supposed to see, that you are the Word made flesh and tabernacled. That you are this combination of divinity and humanity. And so Jesus says, it's expedient to you that I go away from you because they were clinging to him like he was something special. And he says, if I don't go away from you, the spirit will not come to you. Now, the word come there can mean to reveal yourself. Look it up in the concordance. It can mean to show yourself or to reveal yourself. In other words, as long as you're clinging to me, you'll never be able to see the spirit within you, the divinity within you, the glory within you, the habitation of the spirit that you are, the, the vine and the branches that you are, the I am that you are. So when you get to Mary in the garden and Mary says, Oh, and by the way, Jesus says, when he says it's to your advantage that I depart from you, he says, look, you're going to be in opposition. This is left-hand passed up, man. You're going to be in opposition to the religious system. You're going to be in opposition to the political system. You're going to be, you're no longer going to be one of the sheep that just goes along. You're going to be awakened and you're not going to follow your, the course of every other star. You're going to find your own course 
as your own star. And because of that opposition, they're going to kill you and they're going to think they're doing God's service by sacrificing you because that was the patriarchal age in which we live. So then when you get to the garden story, then Mary is looking for the Lord. She can't find him because it's an empty tomb. And I want to declare to you that, that what we're seeing in the day in which we live and the reason so many people are, are suffering from religious trauma and the reason so many people are abandoning churches and the reason the church doesn't really have a future is because it's an empty tomb. Because we're moving out away from the age of sacrifice. Because Jesus did not lose himself when he gave himself at the cross, Jesus gained himself. He took, he reclaimed himself. He took himself back. The same body. See, feel the holes. That's the point. Feel the holes in my hands. Feel the, the hole in my sight. The same person that died is the same person who resurrected and was glorified. So there was no loss. God so loved the world that he gave his son, but he was returning to the Father. There was no loss to the Father. There was no sacrifice to the Father. There was no cruciformity to the Father. There was no loss of Jesus losing his life. He reclaimed the fullness of himself, even his body, when he raised from the dead. That's the point. And then he's telling Mary, which I think he's speaking to the church, don't cling to me. Meaning, don't cling to the historical, literal story. Don't cling to the historical Jesus. Quit fighting over this stuff, whether Jesus was real historically or wasn't real. Or what does the cross mean? Does it mean penal substitutionary atonement? Or does it mean a cruciform sacrifice? Or does it mean, what What does it mean? No, 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 no. What he's saying is, don't cling to me. That's the whole point. But rather, I'm ascending to my God and your God. In other words, you're on a place of equality. I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, the place of equality, so that you can discover the Spirit for yourself, so that you can discover your own divine light, so that you can maximize it in its fullness. Now, for people who are afraid that this is going to lead to some kind of narcissism and self-centeredness, it will when it goes off track. It will when it goes off track. That's why I want to I want to emphasize that you are a star. You are a blazing sun. You are a God, fully maximized, fully actualized as a God, as a divine human, following your own course in harmony with the rest of the cosmos and with the rest of creation, allowing for everyone else to follow their path in harmony and in balance, without demanding that they sacrifice who they are so that they can fit into your club, which is what the church and every religion and every group becomes eventually, whether it's a New Age group, whether it's a Course in Miracles group, whether it's a, a, a Law of One group, whether it's a uh, some kind of reformed religious group, we tend to take on this group identity and it will accept you and love you more if you belong to us. But if you go into opposition, if you oppose the message because your star is going in a different course. See, here's what I'm saying. Everybody that wants to take that right-hand path, we allow that on the left-hand path because that's the course that they're choosing. And to impede that is to impede the very principles that we are saying that we are honoring. So there is not the opposition to that. And we don't demand that people sacrifice their choice to go on the right-hand path so that they choose our left-hand path. You see what I'm saying? But they tend to come at us and want us to go along with them. (laughs) So let me close this by using Abraham Maslow's Hierarchy of human need because he's the one that talks about self-actualization. He's the one 
that talks about self-actualization. If you remember the, the triangle, the pyramid of the hierarchy of human need, you can look it up later. You have need, 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 self-actualization. Here's the point that Maslow was making. Until your needs are fully satisfied and fully enriched, you cannot get to the realm of self-actualization. Selfishness cannot occur at the level of self-actualization because the only place that selfishness and self-centeredness can exist is when you are not fulfilled in your needs, and so therefore you're competing. So let's just take it at the the basic needs is for safety and security or survival. Financial needs, uh, survival needs, that kind of stuff. That's where the competing, that's where the fighting. I, I've got to do something dishonest or maybe unethical to you. I'm trying to get the job. I'm trying to make more money. You get the game, right? Because we're competing over our needs. Then you get into these more social and emotional needs. So now if I need to feel loved, I can end up using the people in my life to make me feel significant, to give me the attention that I want. And that's where the narcissism and the selfishness and the using of people comes in. So as you ascend, this is the real path of ascension. If you can think of yourself as a divine spark on the ground, the goal is to not only become another fire, but for that fire to ascend and become a star. So in this sense, you're ascending through the ladder of unmet human needs, and you're no longer focused on your unmet need. I need you to validate my path by agreeing with me. I need you to validate where I'm at. I need you to come along. I need the masses to come along so I feel safe in society because going in opposition, I don't feel safe. I need people to stay uh, along my line of thinking uh, religiously, politically, socioeconomically, like the same sports team that I like. You can see this in the various different levels because I need that validation. And so that's where a lot, a lot of this conflict and stuff comes from. So what I'm saying is that the left-hand path frees you from need, not by sacrificing your needs, but by allowing, by, by understanding all the parts of you, all the parts of you, the part of you that you want to kill, the part of you that the religion says you have to crucify and you have to give up and you have to sacrifice. Instead of seeing all that stuff as this is something I have to give up in order to secure a blessing with the group. This is something about myself that I have to give up in order to please the sky god. This is some kind of sacrifice that I have to make. Be it my ego, I have to sacrifice my ego to go back into the ocean or to go back into the fire. I have to sacrifice uh, social justice and crying out for social justice. I have to sacrifice my humanity, my flesh. I have to sacrifice my appetites. I have to sacrifice my desires. I have to sacrifice my success. I have to sacrifice my wealth. If I'm a woman, I have to sacrifice my, my individuality so that I come under the covering of my husband. I mean, you can see how this whole thing's built on sacrifice. It's just yucky. So what the, this left-hand path is saying is saying, no, you wake up and you see all that stuff within you as raw materials that are not at their apex yet. And rather than seeking to give them up and sacrifice them, you look for ways, again, that are harmonious with the world around you, that are harmonious. And, and this is what I mean by that. I don't mean that you're going along with the herd. That's not har harmony. I'm talking about 
you are approaching an existence where you honor boundaries. That's what I'm talking about. So you take all of you and you seek to bring it to a higher point or you seek to emblazon it. You seek to release it and free it so that any sacrifice that is involved is not a sacrifice of you. It is a sacrifice of what is binding you and holding you back and preventing you from ascending to that place where all the fullness of you is released, where you might say it in an alchemist term where all the lead in you has not been given up or sacrificed. You haven't lost a single thing. You haven't lost a single drop or a single ounce or a single spark of who you are. You honor who you are in all your manifestations, even the ones you don't like. You can look at the parts of you that you don't like and you can say, this too is me. And you can embrace that part and you can love that part and you can listen to that part and you can find out what that part needs. And then you can think about with your other parts, how do I become a harmonious person so that I'm not at war with myself anymore, so that I'm not struggling with myself anymore, so I'm not trying to give up parts of myself anymore or kill parts of myself or sacrifice parts of myself or I'm ashamed of parts of myself. Rather, I'm embracing all the parts of me. So if I have a problem with temper, I say, I don't judge the part of me that has a temper. I say, this too is me. If I have a part that's hateful, I I don't judge that part. I say, this too is me. If I have a part that has inordinate lusts for something. I don't sacrifice that part. I say, this too is me. And all these parts have needs. And how can we then maximize these parts so that we can live the most fulfilled, most satisfied life possible while at the same time bringing forth fullness who we are so that I'm not sacrificing the spiritual for the natural. I'm not giving up the faith and becoming an atheist and sacrificing the spiritual world, the afterlife, not even necessarily having to sacrifice the Bible or Jesus or God or my relationship with God, certainly not having to sacrifice my spiritual gifts and my towards pull towards spirituality. And so I'm not going to become strictly materialistic and cut off that part of myself. But at the same time, I understand that in order to become a spiritualized human being, that I'm not giving up the human part of myself either. I wouldn't be here as a human being. You didn't come here as a human being. What I'm suggesting to you is, is something totally different, radically different. Not that you came here as a human being and you're somehow cut off because of an illusion or you're somehow cut off because of a fall, whatever that looks like to you, or you're somehow cut off because of sin and you have to be rescued and brought back into the fold and brought back into the flames. What I'm saying is, is that no, God chose to inhabit human flesh to have a fully human experience in order to divinize or make deity or divinity and humanity word and flesh dwell together in harmony and in glory not one giving up to the other that's the marriage supper of the lamb it's the marriage of the spirit and the natural it's the marriage you see what i'm saying so i got to give up all these parts of myself in order to become spiritualized and I'm saying, no, that that makes sense under the idea that somehow you're fallen, somehow you're other than, somehow something went wrong in the plan of God, so there has to be this rescue plan or there has to be this self-path that you somehow work back into ascension to just rejoin to whatever you were before the foundations of the world. Now, what I'm saying is it's more of a God wanting to experience Humanity creating this creation so God could experience himself in or her itself, herself, 
the, the, the source, the divine could experience itself. They, so they could experience being a individuated center of divine consciousness that experiences the fullness of the human experience and transcends the suffering of it. And that's one reason that I'm starting to buy more and more into the possibility of reincarnation, that we are evolving into this, that we are becoming this until we ultimately, so it's not a, it's not a, uh, it's not a rescue mission where I got to get back to something I was before. It's a progressively outward moving of the divine to be, to know itself as an individuated center of consciousness in a world of plurality, a uh, polarity, not plurality, plurality as well, but polarity that ascends and that will translate into our society as celebrating diversity, as equality for all, as no more uh, judging one another. Now, will humanity get there? Maybe not. Maybe we get there in some other plane of existence. Maybe there are others who have gone before us. Maybe that's what they're talking about when they're talking about ascended masters. Maybe Jesus came to show us the way and maybe the New Testament authors because they were part of the patriarchal age and the, the age of sacrifice didn't understand it. Maybe Jesus died because he was taking the left-hand path, moving in opposition to the Judaism of his day. And so they took him unjustly and they crucified him, but yet he transcended it and entered into a different reality without losing his individuated sense of consciousness and perception. And maybe John's gospel is trying to show us the way. All right. I hope that was helpful. I hope that gives you some kind of structure, some kind of meaning and purpose to say, look, you don't have to sacrifice the spiritual and just be a natural person. But by the same token, you don't have to sacrifice a thing about being a natural person to be spiritual, but harmony. And that's the great work. Maybe the path of devotion is really the path of self-actualization. All right. I hope that blesses you. I didn't have a chance to look at the the comments. Um but I know you'll give me some feedback, and I look forward to reading those. Enjoy the rest of your day. I'm going to go have a good time with my family. Namaste. The divine in me recognizes the divine in you, and I honor you, and I bow.